0: What you're about to hear is part five of an eventual six-part series. If you are historically dyslexic, please feel free to start here. For the rest of you, you might want to catch the programs in numerical order. They tend to make more sense that way, although not always. And without further ado, Death Rows of the Republic, part five. December 7th, 1941. It's history. A date which will live in infamy. The events... The drama. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine and remember that we are not descended from fearful men, it's hardcore history. (laughs) What is it like to fight an elephant in hand to hand combat with a spear? That's a question we asked in an earlier episode of this podcast, and it demonstrates one of the techniques we try to weave through every one of these shows, and that's, you know, the first-person level of things. You know, what is that like for the human beings involved in the story? And you have to realize, of course, that there's no way to get into the minds of these people. They were raised with such different cultural influences, such different expectations than we were. The only real way you can connect with them is through those elements, you know, that connect us over the ages, our humanness. There are certain things that you can say that that person had on their emotional spectrum that we have on ours because we are all human. And it's at that level... That I find myself connecting with people from the past. And I know many of you do too. I happen to have this totally unscientific and unsupported by the evidence belief, mostly because it hasn't been studied, that about 20% of us have the ability to read about events of the past or hear about them or see them in movies or whatnot and empathize with the people in the story. You know, we're able to mentally have some sort of human connection where for one You know, flash bulb insight moment, we are able in some tiny way, you know, almost like an aftertaste, an emotional aftertaste, we're able to, you know, connect with what that person's going through or at least wonder about it in a way that touches something inside us. I had one of these moments when I was reading the material, rereading the material for this part in this story that I like to call the Dan Carlin version of the decline and fall of the Roman Republic. And while I'm reading about this particular event, which I've read about before, it's a famous incident, I had to put the book down because for one quarter of one second I had that strange little aftertaste of an emotional experience that I never experienced in my mouth. There's a whole range of human emotions and thoughts That the vast majority of us will never touch. You know, it's in the red zone on the emotional intensity meter. And because we're not going through the experiences these people were reading about in history were, we can't experience in any other way but vicariously what they experienced. And I'm reading about this event that happened in 71 BCE. And I had to put the book down for a moment. For one quick second. I was able to put myself in the position of the person in the story and in some, you know, I mean, it's an insult to say that other than in some tiny, tiny little way. You know, I could almost look over and see the man binding my left hand to the, you know, left arm of a wooden cross. And then I could look over in the other direction and see another man doing the same thing to my right hand. And then you get raised up on this cross, so you're suspended there, you know, eight, 10, 12 feet high, and you are waiting to die. And it could be a long time before you get there. Before you become delirious and, you know, out of your head with dehydration or one of the many other things that would drive you crazy at a moment like this, there's quite a bit of time to think. What's that person thinking about? What's on that person's mind? What do you think about one minute into a crucifixion? And, you know, I've got the book down in my lap and I'm thinking about this and it just reminds you what a horrible punishment crucifixion is. It was considered an extreme punishment in an era and by people who considered things we would consider to be sadistic ways to die normal. Crucifixion was such a terrible way to die that things that would normally be considered, you know, wanton, senseless, Cruelty were actually considered merciful if it was being done to someone who was, you know, strapped up there, not nailed. The normal procedure was to rope someone to a pole or a cross. And those people would often try to sell whatever meager possessions they still possessed, for example, the clothing that they were wearing, to some passing soldier in the hopes that they could persuade this soldier to stab them in the side with a spear. Which of course is what's supposed to have happened to uh the biblical Jesus Christ. And it's always portrayed as some sort of, you know, sadistic, um, you know, extra punishment on the part of the Roman soldier, when in effect that would have been, you know, merciful. Same thing with the breaking of the legs of the crucifixion victims. You know, they pay someone to break their legs because if that happened, all the weight of the body would be suspended on the two arms tied to the cross, and that would often have the Effective asphyxiating the victim. Anything would be better than sitting up there for three or four days before you died from exposure. Try staying in the same position for one hour and see how torturous that is without any of the other aspects. The cramping alone would be enough to act as torture. And for one second in 71 BCE, I felt like I could see it in my mind's eye. Six 1000 people being crucified you know the same day or maybe the same week they didn't go into detail how long it took to crucify 6000 people but if you had the army involved you might do it in a single day so now imagine seeing the view from the eyes of the crucifixion victim that I was reading about the other day and when they raise that cross up so you're suspended above the crowd you look and you see Lots of other people going, you know, stretching far off into the distance in the exact same situation you're in, all along the Appian Way. And it doesn't take much imagination to understand why the decision was made to put all these people to death along one of Rome's busiest highways. It was obviously to send a message. When you see a person dying on a cross every... 40 or 50 or 60 yards, it gets in your head a little bit. And the reason this message was deemed important enough to be sent was because the people dying on these crosses were slaves, part of the largest, almost certainly largest, slave rebellion in all human history. And the 6,000 or so temporarily surviving members of this slave army were going to send a message in their death throes to all the other slaves passing by. This is what happens when you decide to face the might of Rome. And the message was being sent by a specific Roman, perhaps in order to gain a political edge back in the elections at home. That's a heck of a campaign ad. These people who were being so cruelly executed along Rome's busiest highways for more than 100 miles and whose bodies would stay up where they were for months, as a reminder and warning, those people were the very last remnants of what had almost certainly been the largest slave army in all human history. And when I say that, I don't mean slave army in the way that the Ottoman Turks of the 13, 14, and 1500s you know, the recent historical era. I don't mean anything like them where they had these slave soldiers raised up from kids who formed the Janissaries in their famous Turkish armies. Nor do I mean the sorts of slave soldiers like a people such as the ancient Illyrians would employ, where the warriors would each bring five or six slaves to the battlefield each, and they would all fight alongside each other, you know, in the life-or-death battles. Not like that either. These crucifixion victims were part of a slave revolt, perhaps the most famous one ever. It's the slave revolt commanded by the Thracian gladiator Spartacus, known to historians as the Third Servile War. And in reality, the Third Servile War plays a really sidebar role in this story. The only reason it really matters in the question of the decline and fall of the Roman Republic is it becomes just another one of those crisis opportunities, those situations that seem out of the norm, even though they happen so often they are, in effect, part of the norm now in Roman history, that allow these hyper-ambitious great figures to come forward and expand their powers in ways that we would call today extra-constitutional. And it was especially bad in Rome because they had no written constitution, and if something happened often enough, it was, you know, through precedent— constitutional. So the more that, you know, these figures like Sulla arrived on the scene and used special dictatorial measures to fix things, the more that stuff becomes little by little almost constitutional itself. And when you think about this era, you know, when the slave revolt that ends up with these people on crosses, you know, when you think about this era, it had to have been an amazingly unsettling time. Everything's happening so fast, it's hard to get your mind around how quickly things were changing. Remember, in 91 BCE, which is less than two decades before this period, that's when Rome has the famous war against her own allies. Then right after that ends, Rome has a civil war against itself. And that's when you have Marius and Sulla going at it, the prescriptions and the murder of political enemies, and Rome changes hands several times, and every time is followed by a massacre. And then when that's over with, you get the dictatorship of Sulla. And then he dies, and the ashes aren't even cold before, you know, a Populare consul tries to overthrow all the Sullen changes. And then, you know, one or two or three years later, here we are again, and you've got Spartacus. And understand something. Spartacus's move could not have caught the Romans by surprise. After all, there's a reason they called it the Third Servile War, and that's because Rome had already fought two. And if you go look at the first and second Servile Wars, the first one fought about the time of Tiberius Gracchus, the second one fought about the same time Caius Marius was beating up on the Cimbri and the Teutons, and both of them extremely large by any sort of modern standards. I mean, there may have been 70,000, 100,000 people involved in the first Servile War. When you get the third Servile War, the only thing that makes it outrageously different than the first two is, one, the numbers are bigger, and two... The first two servile wars were off on the island of Sicily, far away in the Roman Italians' mind from where they were, and the farms being destroyed and the people being killed and the slaves being stolen away from their masters as a Roman master would see it. That was all happening, you know, over the horizon. The third servile war happened in Roman Italy, and all of a sudden the farms that were being burned and the slaves that were being lured away were Roman ones in Italy, sometimes even, you know, near the eternal city itself. And, you know, every time I look at the survival wars, I get a million what-if scenarios, you know, firing off in my head. The first one that always comes to mind is, oh my gosh, what if that had happened in the USA before the U.S. Civil War? Or what if the U.S. Civil War never happened and the African-American slaves in the USA had to sort of get their own freedom through revolts? Because a bad revolt in the pre-Civil War USA is something like You know, 70 to 90 slaves, sometimes a couple hundred, but one of the most infamous slave revolts in all U.S. history is the famous Nat Turner revolts, where 70 to 90 slaves caused panic in the southern states all sorts of legal reforms were put into place after that one to make sure we never got another slave revolt that big again, what would have happened in the U.S. South if 120,000 African-American slaves were breaking into federal armories and taking weapons and fighting off southern militia armies put together to, you know, defeat them? And if they were defeated with all the horrible atrocities, judging from how other slave revolts in our country were put down, imagine what world opinion and opinion in the North might have been like among the abolitionists. A lot of fascinating what ifs. And it's not that outrageous to wonder about it, because 120,000 African-American slaves in 1850 would have been a much smaller percentage of the slave population than 120,000 Roman slaves out of an estimated million Roman slaves were, was. The slaves of Spartacus are famous because they fought off a bunch of Roman armies. You don't usually imagine that happening. At one point, there's 70,000 of them camped out on Mount Vesuvius, we're told, and they defeat a couple of militia legions sent up to deal with them. And then there's 120,000 of them, we're told, you know, running around Italy defeating consular armies that face them. And eventually, the Romans are desperate for a good general to shut this slave revolt down. Here's where the reason this story is important to the decline and fall of the Roman Republic comes into play. Because most ambitious Romans don't want anything to do with commanding the forces putting down the slave revolt. There's nothing to be gained in most of their minds and a lot to lose. I mean, one of the reasons these ambitious Roman figures usually want to command troops is either to gain money, and conquering a slave army wasn't going to bring that, or renown. And if you lose to a slave army, which Spartacus had already proved could happen over and over again, you're going to look like an idiot. And if you defeat the slave army, everybody's going to kind of go, well, it was a slave army, and we're not going to celebrate a triumph for that. Who wants to be remembered for conquering a bunch of slaves? It was looked at as a not good opportunity, especially when that, you know, perennial bugbear... Mithridates, now an old man, and getting ready to launch what will be called the Third Mithridatic War, is still making trouble in the East with all that money and gold and jewelry. He's sitting on the Roman commanders worth anything. We're almost certainly sitting on their hands thinking, I'll sit that Spartacus thing out, and I'll command the you know, upcoming war against Mithridates. So now Rome needs help. And the guy who steps into the gap to fill that role is one of these people that, Sulla hoped his dictatorial reforms would prevent from becoming too powerful. Marcus Licinius Crassus. Now, Sulla wasn't thinking that Crassus specifically shouldn't become too powerful. He was trying to arrange it so that these Romans did not get into positions anymore where they could take power beyond what was constitutionally allowable. And these crises that Rome kept finding itself in provided those opportunities. Think of, you know, multiple 9 11s. You know, the same role that 9-11 played in the last dozen years of U.S. history. That's what all these wars are. The wars against the Roman allies, the civil wars, the wars against the slaves. And when someone steps into the gap and starts involving themselves in the problem, you don't ask too many questions about the constitutionality of what they're doing because they're doing something, you know, they're dealing with an unusual, extreme situation. And Rome's problem in all this period is that those situations seem to be coming with increasing frequency. By this time, Marcus Licinius Crassus is going to be the guy that profits from it. Now, understand something. Profit is a key word, because Marcus Licinius Crassus didn't need profit, which is one of the reasons this war looked better to him than to a bunch of other Roman elites to whom profit was very important. Crassus may have been the richest man in the Roman world at this time, and if he wasn't, he was on the top ten list. Money was only important to him at this point for what else it could do for him He wanted what every Roman elite, you know, member of the political class wanted. He wanted power. He wanted to be consul. And he had to overcome certain deficiencies. The first deficiency of note for Crassus was he didn't have a great military resume. He had all the money, all the connections. He'd loaned money to everyone. And it was said that you'd rather pay Crassus, I'm paraphrasing here, but you'd rather pay him his money with his interest back than have to owe him a favor because that's where he really got the most out of the people he lent money to. Crassus was perhaps the greatest hoarder of favors I've ever run into in my life, and maybe the best at using them. Now all of Rome was going to owe Crassus for the service he was providing, putting down what looked to the law and order Romans to be a momentous uprising of criminals. And Crassus had reason to want some military achievements added to his resume because his main competitor in the minds of many Romans during this era was the rock star of military achievements during this era. He was a glorious figure, and Crassus was much more of a workmanlike figure. Hard to compete with the luminescence surrounding this person known as Pompeius Magnus, Pompey the Great, a guy who had been given a triumph before he was old enough to have one, a guy that had told the murderous great Clint Eastwood dictator Sulla at the height of Sulla's power that people worship the rising sun more than the setting sun. Pompeius, of course, being the rising sun, Sulla the setting sun, And there was something about Pompeius that allowed him to get away with it. He was, as author Tom Holland says, insufferably successful. And his successes were military achievements. One of the things about Pompey that's interesting is the ancient sources comment about how much of a status he had in the minds of the Romans. You know, the people of Rome really did treat him like some sort of, you know, music celebrity or something. But he was more popular when he was gone. It was almost like there was a mystique about him and you would get the reports of his achievements in a place like Spain or against the pirates or what have you. And then he would show up in Rome for a while and you'd actually see him on the streets and the reality didn't quite live up to the hype. So when Pompey was away... He was a figure that sort of haunted someone like Crassus, because here's Crassus going about the dogged, determined daily business of political maneuvering. And here's Pompey, who's off doing his thing, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And his legendary Alexander the Great-like status among the populares of Rome seems to be increasing, you know, all the time. He's getting more mileage way over where he is than... Crassus, who's loaning money to everybody and learning the names of every lowly Roman he encounters in the forum so he could impress them by remembering their names. I mean, he even spoke better than Pompey. We're told Pompey would blush and get uncomfortable trying to speak to a crowd. He knew so little about the actual mechanics of Roman politics that he would need a cheat sheet written up for him by someone who knew better. Pompey wasn't about that stuff. That was Boring, day-to-day, you know, political stuff. This was a romantic, glory-addicted figure who liked triumphs, who liked armies, and who liked achievements because it made him popular. This was the guy Crassus had to somehow overshadow, and it was hard to do. So he brought some troops that he had procured himself. Remember, Crassus is the guy that said you can't really call yourself rich, unless you can afford an army. So he brings some troops that he put together himself. He's also given by the Roman you know, leadership a couple of the consular armies. Already we're seeing this extra constitutional stuff happening because of this current crisis you know, on his merry way to put down the slave revolt. And at some point, a couple of his legions do something against his orders, and so he lines them up. The ancient sources take good care to point this out. This is an example of the kind of character... Crassus was supposedly bringing. You know, you can almost see the political machinations of his PR staff. He has the legionaries brought before him and he imposes the ancient punishment of decimation we're told. Well one source says a little something different but basically he tells the legion to draw lots and every tenth man will be beaten to death by his comrades or alternatively have to watch him beaten to death by his comrades. And this is supposedly something that will appeal to the law and order Roman voters. It looks like he's getting tough and weeding out all these softies and we're going to get tough and stop this slave rebellion now, which Crassus, by what must be admitted rather remarkable strategic generalship, does a very good job boxing in, you know, this giant army of slaves. I keep trying to imagine 120,000 people trying to, you know, be fed every day and have their sanitary needs taken care of, and have clean water. And I mean, you just think about how big the camp would have been. Think about it if it's even half the size, the ancient writers say. And what Crassus was doing was boxing them in. He finally has them cornered all the way into the tip of Italy, and he proceeds to have his troops build a fortification across the tip of Italy so they're cut off from the rest of the Italian peninsula. And he's just about to wrap these slave wars up, when rumor comes to him that Pompeius Magnus is coming back from Spain and he's looking to get involved and get a little cut of the glory in the slave revolt situation. And of course, Crassus has it all won. Here comes Pompey to swoop in like a vulture and try to steal it from him. So he hurries up, he tries to get it all done with. He's basically got the slave army defeated. And at one point, Pompey swoops in and kills 5,000 stragglers who've gotten away from, you know, Crassus's blockade and then Pompey goes under Rome and says yes I, I ended the war he gives Crassus a little credit for setting the stage but you know when it comes to wrapping it up and putting the nail in the coffin I got those 5,000 people and it's over This infuriated Crassus and may have had something to do with him feeling a need to have the 6,000 people crucified along Rome's busiest busy as highways as a way of saying I don't care what you've heard here are 6,000 1,000 more than Pompey slew Right here, imagine how many others I killed, you know, during the operations. This was a setup for the consular elections of 70 BCE. And right away, with hindsight, it seems very obvious this is a Pompey versus Crassus Roman election. It's flash and glory versus money and maneuverings. And the two men don't like each other. What's more, both these men had armies and they took their armies back to Rome with them and both of them camped outside the walls of Rome with their legions. And of course, this freaked out both the people in Rome and the Senate. Everyone can remember the last 20 years. What does it look like when you have powerful Roman individuals commanding legions and they're outside the walls of Rome? Obviously, everyone is a little unnerved by the whole thing. And yet, the Senate of Rome is hoping that the fact that there's two of these powerful guys and that they don't like each other is going to help cancel out their power. Instead, Pompey and Crassus do the unexpected and join forces. You see, they had petitioned the Senate for some waivers. They both want to come in and run for the top job in Rome. They want to be consul. And remember, there's two consuls. The problem is is that they have these armies with them, and you're not allowed to bring your army into Rome unless you're celebrating a triumph. You'd have to disband your army. Well, Pompey didn't disband his army. He said he wanted his army for a triumph, but he had to come in and get elected. Then he would go back out and bring the army in and use them for the triumph. He didn't want them to go home. And then Crassus, understandably, said, well, I'm not disbanding my army if he doesn't disband his. These are two of the leading figures of the forefront of a new Roman generation coming of age in Roman politics, even though Crassus is, you know, about 40 now. These are the people who learned how to play the Roman political game during its most bloody and, you know, bloodthirsty period, the Civil Wars. These guys understand, you know, the power and potential of legions and how having them can get you all sorts of rules waived. Pompey is supposed to have famously said while he was working for Sulla, you know, somebody started quoting some regulations to him about things that he could or could not do when he and a bunch of soldiers showed up on a scene. And Pompey famously said, don't quote laws to men who have swords. That's the lesson. And Crassus and Pompey both understood it. So they had swords with them in the thousands outside the gates of Rome. And they were both going to join forces And share the consulship, after all. There's two of them, one for Pompey, one for Crassus, and the Senate gave way. As historian David Schotter says, providing a wonderful first example of how the Senate would give way under the pressure of a combination of great men. Both Pompey and Crassus were elected, overwhelmingly, and part of the reason why was they had done all the right things. They'd promised all the right things to all the right groups, both of them were promising to give in to the demands of the roman business class for changes in the way asia was being administered asia was where all the money was and if you weren't squeezing asia hard enough the business class would get upset and squeal and they were squealing and pompey and crassus were saying you know if they were elected things would change and asia would become more profitable and you'll all be happy business class And the people had been screaming ever since Sulla died about wanting to overturn all those constitutional changes he made. They want their offices back, especially the tribune of the plebs. They want it empowered again so it can really do things. And the way a Populare, like most of the Roman plebs were, um, you know, the way they thought about doing things was having a tribune who could do what Tiberius Gracchus and Caius Gracchus and all those guys did a person who could really go in there and start chewing through the Roman system and getting them things they wanted. And remarkably, Pompey and Crassus, both protégés of the guy who, you know, made that illegal, promised to restore that too. And in 70 BCE, they did all these things. Author Anthony Everett had a very interesting speculation where he suggested that returning the Tribune of the Plebs' power to the people was not a completely disinterested measure. That's how he put it. Because he said that that would give generals a new tool that they could use if they couldn't get past the Senate somehow, once again finding a loophole in the system that could be exploited by people who were you know, looking for loopholes. After the consulships of Crassus and Pompey expire, both men try to go about their normal business although they're still probably the two most powerful men in Rome. Crassus goes back to money lending, and widening his ever-expanding group of people who owe him favors. Pompey tries to get down to the day-to-day job of a Roman senator, but it all seems a little boring for him. The hearings, the glad-handing, just doesn't seem to suit a guy who's used to being a flashy general, and the sources indicate that he's looking around for an opportunity to get that sort of gig again. And while all this is going on you begin to see the emergence from the historical you know fog of the rest of the generation that pompey and crassus represent the leading edge of the group that historian eric grun calls the last generation of the roman republic and a bunch of leading figures who could compete with any generation the roman republic or empire ever produced for formidable human beings one of them represents one of the few times in history you actually see a historical legend seemingly reborn. That's a um, common myth across cultures all over the world and all different eras. The best example is probably the idea of King Arthur in Great Britain. And the idea always was that King Arthur, whether or not he really existed, um, you know will return someday when Britain is in time of need. And you can go to cultures all around the world and see some heroic figure who's dead, who did great things, died, and now everyone believes will come back when the nation really needs them. There are a few times in history where you actually see something that make you scratch your head and go, wow, that's a pretty good example of what it might look like. And in this era, it comes in the form of a man who's named, just like the historical figure, he's sort of the reincarnation of. His name is Cato, and he's known as Cato the Younger in history because Cato the Elder was the person who he almost looked like a twin of, at least someone who certainly modeled himself very well after his ancestor. Cato the Elder had been the one back during the Punic Wars, the one who ended every speech by saying, oh, and by the way, Carthage must be destroyed, a paragon of Roman virtue. That's exactly what Cato the Younger set out to be as well. He would become almost a stock character, someone writing a play could make a two-dimensional, you know, figure out of this guy because he was the moralist. He was the goody-two-shoes who lived a life that was so clean it made everyone else look bad. He's portrayed as being devoted to the ancient Roman virtues from the get-go. And he's not really a letter of the law kind of person, he's a spirit of the law kind of person, which makes him even, you know, harder for other people to swallow. They may be very lawyerish and they can find little loopholes in the law. Cato didn't go in for loopholes. He was all about walking the walk, and that's what he was known for. He lived like a monk in his private life. The only thing he did that anyone could look at as a fault was he was a big drinker and liked his wine, but it never left him the worse for wear. He never, you know, didn't get up early, he never didn't do his job ever and he made you look bad because of how well he did it. The stories of his upbringing are extremely interesting. First of all, he was an orphan. His parents had died, so he was brought up in the house of Marcus Livius Drusus, the Roman figure who was killed, assassinated at his house in 91 BCE, touching off, you know, the war with the Allies in Rome. Then, during Sulla's dictatorship, the young 14-year-old Cato, we're told, is often brought to see the dictator while he's dictator. And while he's there, he watches, you know, the heads of Sulla's political opponents, the victims of the prescriptions, being brought in, you know, for examination by Sulla. And Plutarch writes a piece where he talks about how, you know, Cato's in the room as a 14-year-old, and you can just hear the sighs in the room as some famous person's head is brought in on a platter. Here's what Plutarch says about, you know, Cato visiting with the Clint Eastwood dictator figure of Sulla when he's but 14 years old, quote, Sulla, who was a friend of their family, sent at times for Cato and his brother to see them and talk with them, a favor which he showed to very few after gaining his great power and authority. Sarpedon, that's Cato's teacher and minder at the time, Sarpedon, full of the advantage it would be, as well as for the honor as the safety of his scholars, would often bring Cato to wait upon Sulla at his house, which for the multitude of those that were being carried off in custody and tormented there, looked like a place of execution, Cato was then in his fourteenth year, and seeing the heads of men, said to be of great distinction, brought thither, and observing the secret sighs of those who were present, he asked his preceptor, Why does nobody kill this man? Because, said he, they fear him, child, more than they hate him. Why then, replied Cato, did you not give me a sword, that I might stab him and free my country from this slavery? Sarpedon. Hearing this, and at the same time seeing his countenance swelling with anger and determination, took care, thenceforward, to watch him strictly, lest he should hazard any desperate attempt." End quote. See, Cato would turn out to be a very conservative figure in the Roman political scene, because conservative is hearkening back to the ancient virtues and laws of Rome. But Sulla, who's also considered a conservative, was breaking those ancient laws by being a dictator. And Cato, at 14, said, why doesn't anybody kill the guy? And his minder said, because they're afraid. He said, well, why don't you give me a sword? I'll kill him. And his minder took that seriously based on Cato's, you know, look at the time. That story exemplifies, you know, the Cato image. But the Cato image was considered to be out of touch with reality by most Romans. As the great lawyer Cicero said, Cato acts as though he lives in Plato's Republic instead of inhabiting the sewers of Rome. His philosophy wanted an ideal, and the Rome he inhabited was far from that. Historian Will Durant had an interesting line about Cato, where he pointed out that Cato preferred to be ruled by an aristocracy, you know, all the old noble families of Rome with the famous last names, rather than be ruled by all the rich people that were now becoming very powerful in Rome, the business class with all its extra money, and Cato being one of those old-fashioned guys who looked back toward, you know, early Roman values, would see the ancient families as the only logical, powerful counterbalance to the, you know, new Bill Gateses and George Soros and Donald Trump types that were emerging in Roman society, guys like Crassus, for example. Here's what Will Durant writes. He says, quote, he scorned the business classes and defended aristocracy, or rule by birth, as the only alternative to plutocracy, or rule by wealth. He warred without truce upon the men who were corrupting Roman politics with money and Roman character with luxury. End quote. So a fascinating figure reminds you of some of the modern moralists, except you'll never catch Cato in some brothel or involved in some major scandal unless it was that he had a little too much wine the night before. The next figure to emerge from this historical fog is the man we just mentioned a second ago, the great Roman intellectual Cicero. And Cicero is supposed to have said once that writing is the only true form of immortality, and he's the case that proves it, because one of the reasons that Cicero is as famous as he is is because of an almost historical case of good luck. A ton of his writings have come down to us. I can think of a thousand historical figures we would be just as enamored with as Cicero if their writings had managed, you know, by hook or by crook or some form of historical good fortune come down to us. Not only we have Cicero's official stuff, we actually have his personal letters to his best friend, you know, the places where he expressed his innermost thoughts, but also, you know, he would express to his friend the tactics he was using, you know, his political tactics. Whereas if you got the official stuff, all you saw were the political tactics being used. It creates a very three-dimensional figure and contributes to the complexity of this era. We're starting to get a lot of writing from a lot of the principles in this, you know, story. And not just that They have a partisan agenda in their era when they write this stuff. So you get a complete three-dimensional image. Sometimes you get, you know, political slander, and it's hard to know what's true and what's not. Cicero's a wonderful example. Was Cicero this high-minded defender of the Roman Constitution, or was he this venal politician who, you know, saw defending the Constitution as a wonderful political position to adopt, you know, to grab the widest cross-section of... Roman voters. There are several different traditions about this guy. He is, though, the only figure in our story that's truly an intellectual, that that's all he does. He's not known as a general. He's not known as a rich guy. He's known as someone whose oratory is devastatingly dangerous and feared. After his death, after his murder... For having a big mouth, I guess you could say, or having a silver tongue or what have you, the Roman tradition is that it will be cut out and a pin stuck through it before it's displayed on the rostrum as a way of getting back at the man's most dangerous weapon. Cicero's tongue was lethal. And it wasn't just the way that Cicero expressed his ideas. Sometimes the ideas themselves were revolutionary. Historian Michael Grant was a big Cicero fan, and here's what he writes about the uh, Roman orator, statesman, lawyer, quote, Cicero, despite all his own faults and faults of his age, had accepted the Greek idea, now current among Roman jurists and other thinkers, of natural law, which was a corollary of the admission of non-citizens to Rome's legal system, and which ought to be observed by all mankind. That is to say, he was convinced that right is right and wrong is wrong objectively, and that no pronouncements or laws can make them otherwise. And what was most wrong of all, he believed, was for one person to tyrannize others. Following up on the precincts of the Stoic philosophy founded two and a half centuries earlier, he accepted its injunction that men and women should treat one another generously and honestly. They must do so because all human beings have their own personal value and importance. This is because, according to the Stoic doctrine, all individuals share a spark of divinity that makes them akin to each other, irrespective of race or status or sex in the universal brotherhood of humankind. That was one of the principal elements, Grant says, in the Humanitas, upon which Cicero insisted in a series of wonderfully well-written treatises on moral themes. Shunning dogma, in accordance with the views of the contemporary Athens Academy, these essays adopted Greek philosophy to Roman life, and both exemplified and demanded an enlightenment of mind and character, a recognition not only of one's own unique personality, but also of the personality of others. This was the most civilized ideal for practical purposes of living that the world had ever seen. It has deeply influenced Western thought from his time to our own. End quote. One gets the impression that there are other sources, both from you know, his lifetime and since, that could be found that would contradict such a high-minded, long-term view of Cicero. But that's just sort of the controversial figure all these people are starting to be as we get more information you know, from this period. As history sort of opens up wider, all of a sudden our perspective gets less two-dimensional. That's especially true with the next person, to arrive, you know, past those historical mists and come to the fore. He's one of the most famous people in all human history. I'm, of course, talking about the great Julius Caesar. Caius Julius Caesar is the full name. And under the old standards of history, the so-called great man version of history, as opposed to the more multidimensional, type of history we have now that looks at regular folks and people from all different walks of life, in the old Churchillian style of history, and by those standards, Julius Caesar very well may be the greatest figure in all history. And it's hard to not go overboard when you're talking about him. First of all, he appears to me to have been a genius, a born genius, someone like a Mozart. In the same way Mozart was born, a musical genius— when you read about the talents that Caesar had, they seem to be almost in that same sort of genre. He was different from birth and his talents were specifically, you know, handy if you happened to want to do what he wanted to do and what most Romans of any era wanted to do. He was from an old family that had fallen on hard times. He could trace his lineage, and remember in the Roman system, if you had someone famous in your background, they appeared at every family funeral and any event, and there was a wall probably in his house growing up showing these people from a long, 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 long time ago that had the same last name or middle name as he had. He could trace his descent according to him all the way back to the gods. He was related to Venus, you see, and that's a pretty good family tree. Add to that some consuls that had ruled, you know, Rome 400 years previously. I mean, it's a great long lineage, but he lived in a not-so-big house in a bad part of town where the brothels were and the bars and the seedy lowlifes, and he was the first real gifted person in his family to be born in quite some time. Here's how Pliny the Younger describes him. Quote, Caesar is said to have been tall, fair, and well-built, with a rather broad face and keen, dark brown eyes. He was something of a dandy, always keeping his head carefully trimmed and shaved, and has been accused of having certain other hairy parts of his body plucked with tweezers. His baldness was a disfigurement which his enemies harped upon, much to his exasperation. But he used to comb the thin strands of hair forward on the top of his head, and of all the honors voted him by the Senate and the people, none pleased him so much as the privilege of wearing a laurel wreath on all occasions. He constantly took advantage of it. His dress was, it seems, unusual. He had added wrist-length sleeves with fringes to his purple-striped senatorial tunic, and the belt which he wore over it was never tightly fastened. Hence, Sulla's warning to the aristocratic party, beware of that boy with the loose clothes. End quote. I can't help but think of Caesar as sort of a rich punk rock type of guy. He was setting fashion trends at all times. I mean... People a couple of years after Caesar did something, you know, it would be all around Rome. He set the fashion trends. And he had a certain arrogance about him that he could pull off because he was utterly charming. This was another one of these things that, in a system of government where you didn't just get to be born a king like Alexander the Great, Alexander never had to be particularly charming if he didn't want to be. In Caesar's world, which was a political world, in a republic, even you know at this late stage his personal charm and his personal magnetism and his ability to get along with people and relate to them was a huge part of his success and dressing provocatively and standing out and being a sort of a fashion plate and at the same time nonconformist was intoxicating he was a little bit of a celebrity even from the very beginning historian Michael Grant who is not as enamored of Caesar as he is of Cicero still had to write this about the qualities of the man's you know, personality. Quote Equally disconcerting and indeed unnerving was Caesar's extraordinary charm. Whenever he chose to exhibit it, the people in whose company he found himself were overwhelmed by the fascinating manner, amusing conversation, and hilarious good humor of this supremely courteous cultivated urbane man. Grant then goes on to say though but the gift which contributed most largely to his success was an abnormally energetic ability to get things done. He quotes Pliny the Elder, who was explaining what Caesar did all the time when he was traveling from place to place. He would travel usually in a litter, and people would carry it, and while he was going from place to place in the litter, he'd be doing work the whole time. Here's what he wrote, quote, Caesar was accustomed to write or dictate and read at the same time, simultaneously dictating to his secretaries four letters on the most important subjects, or, if he had nothing else to do, as many as seven. Here's what Grant says about Caesar's ability to do all these things at once. The point was that he could do everything with extraordinary speed. The orator Cicero, who hated him utterly, described his rapidity at the beginning of the Civil War as something horrifying and monstrous. Caesar lived at a faster tempo than the people who had to contend with him, and this gave him an enormous advantage, offering the widest scope to that capacity for the unexpected, unpredictable action which his friends found such an irresistibly attractive feature of his talents. End quote. Grant then goes on to point out his belief this is why Caesar had such an amazing ability to trust his own luck. And he points out that to a lot of ancient peoples, the Roman included, luck wasn't just chance. Luck indicated some sort of favoritism from the gods or the divine or what have you. A lucky person was lucky for a reason, not just because he was lucky. Now, another aspect of Caesar's character that makes him wonderfully... ...suited to being a soap opera historical figure... ...is that apparently he was sleeping with everyone. The Roman story of this period reminds me a lot... ...of a very open version of Victorian England... ...where the public morals are supposed to be kind of... ...you know, strict... ...but everyone's still sleeping with everyone else behind closed doors... ...and Caesar will have a reputation... ...and, and, and will really actually not just sleep with a lot of women... He will sleep with a lot of women who are married to the very people he's contending with and fighting with. He's sleeping with celebrity women, essentially, famous wives. The people who are both the friends and enemies of him personally. There's a famous story with Cato, who's issuing a harangue about a plot that was supposedly uncovered that he thought Caesar was involved in. And he's yelling and screaming about this plot and someone wants to overthrow the government. And all of a sudden, while all this is going on and Caesar is sitting there watching Cato impassively, someone brings a note quietly to Caesar who opens it up and reads it. Well, Cato sees that this is happening and he points to Caesar and says, See, you know, there's evidence Well he's reading notes right here. That's probably, you know, from one of the conspirators. Hand over that note at once. So Caesar hands it to Cato and it's a love letter from Cato's sister, an explicit one. That was vintage Caesar. When he was still in his teens, he was sent to Bithynia, which is over in Asia Minor, and supposedly the king of Bithynia took a fancy to him, and they had an affair, or not, but the reputation of having maybe lost his virginity to the king of Bithynia followed Caesar around for the rest of his life. Some historians suggest that he didn't care that much because at least it was getting his name out there in front of the public and everyone would know who he was. That's the same reason you walk around the Forum in a toga with sleeves with fringe on it, a little like Elvis Presley, and wearing your belt really loose and your toga hanging, you know, off of you in an almost wanton fashion. Bit of a punk rock prodigy with the charm to pull it off, it seems to me. And Caesar had guts, real guts. He would tell people who had the power to lop his head right off no. when they told him to do something it happened to him when the dictator sulla told him that he needed to divorce his wife and caesar said no and all the historical evidence suggests that caesar's wife was not someone he had a passionate attachment to after all he was having affairs all the time but sulla told him to do this or essentially face the consequences and caesar told him where to go Now the reason that Sulla told Caesar to do this is because Caesar's wife was the daughter of the revolutionary Cinna, who with Caius Marius came in from the Populare side and took over Rome and killed all those people. You could hardly mention their names anymore in Roman society. And not only was Caesar married to that woman, but he was a relative through marriage of Caius Marius. Like a double negative. And still, Sulla's going to not kill him. Just all you have to do is divorce your wife. And he said, I'm not going to divorce my wife. And he's still a kid, basically. That marks him out as special right there. After getting on Sulla's bad side, but managing to avoid being killed, Caesar leaves Italy for a while. You know, let the heat die down. And then when Sulla dies, he comes back to Italy, but then quickly leaves again and has one of those experiences that could be part of the movie. You know, the life and adventures of young Julius Caesar... Because he's not anybody but a young up-and-comer now, and he gets captured by pirates. And here's how historian Will Durant relates that famous you know, pirate story from Julius Caesar's young life. Quote, Pirates captured him on the way, took him to one of their Calician lairs, and offered to free him for twenty talents. He reproached them for underestimating his value, and volunteered to give them fifty Having sent his servants to raise the money, he amused himself by writing poems and reading them to his captors. They did not like them. He called them dull barbarians and promised to hang them at the earliest opportunity. When the ransom came, he hurried to Miletus, engaged vessels and crews, chased and caught the pirates, recovered the ransom, and crucified them. But being a man of great clemency, he had their throats cut first. Then he went to Rhodes to study rhetoric and philosophy. End quote. I think perhaps the part I like the best about that is then he went to Rhodes to study rhetoric and philosophy. Interesting people, these Romans, eh? That's a great story, though, because what it essentially tells you is that Caesar's charm was such that he was interacting in a friendly way with these pirates who captured him in jokes, you know, in a not-so-joking fashion that, you know, as soon as I'm out of here, I'm going to come back and kill you all. And they were kind of going, okay, you know, all right, good luck. And when they try to offer a ransom, Caesar feels insulted by how low it is, and offers them almost triple what they're asking. I mean, these are the kind of things, and then to go, well, and then to go do it, then to go and raise the crews, and come back, and crucify all these guys who he knew by name while he was captured with them. You can see right there you're not dealing with a normal human being. Now, even though Caesar had supporters on both sides of the major political divide in Rome. After all, if he hadn't had conservative supporters, he never would have escaped Sulla's purges when Sulla said that that guy has a bunch of Mariuses in him, and he lived anyway. But for the whole of his life, Caesar would be probably the most steadfast Roman politician that there was for the populare cause. And normally, the Roman politicians supported whichever cause you know, the moment dictated. There were some that were firmly in one camp or the other all the time, though, and Caesar's one of the ones who's most firmly in, you know, what might be called the, you know, people's side of the equation, the ones who supported the People's Assembly over the Senate and who opposed, for the most part, the oligarchy. Very difficult to oppose the oligarchy all the time and still do well in Rome, although money helped, and Caesar was able to get his hands on plenty and spent it lavishly In addition, Caesar was known for his clemency. When he would get in positions of power, especially with Romans, but sometimes even with barbarians and other people, Caesar's clemency and willingness to spare people's lives was unusual. And it's very, very possible that it was more of a political tactic than anything else. In the same way that Crassus would loan you money and you would owe him a favor, Caesar would spare your life and you would owe him for that. There are people later on in this story that will kill themselves rather than owe Caesar for their continued existence. Caesar's populare sympathies were worn on his sleeve as well. Remember, Sulla had told him to divorce his wife because his wife was the daughter of Cinna, the revolutionary, and Caesar had told him to go jump in the lake. Well, after Sulla is dead in the post sullen climate in Rome, you're not allowed to talk about people like Cinna. And the great Gaius Marius. Their statues had been removed in the city, and in polite conversation, their names were never brought up. Well, Caesar has a couple of important funerals early on in his political career, and funerals were the place, remember, where the Romans would display, either with images or statues, or with wax death masks, or with actors dressed up in the parts, their famous ancestors. It was part of, you know, pumping up the family reputation. It had political ramifications, and when Caesar's aunt and his wife died, he brought out the banned images of Gaius Marius to the funeral. That's wearing your political sympathies on your sleeve, and at the same time it was so unusual, such an outrage, that people were told stood up at the funeral and started yelling and screaming about what an outrage it was. And to show how divided and repressed a society it was, where all of the people who had supported a popular cause had to kind of bite their tongues for years. other people at the funeral stood up and shouted down those who originally yelled about seeing the Gaius Marius funeral displays. When Caesar gets a little older and he gets one of those junior magistrate positions in Rome, you might compare it to being in charge of parks and recreation, and one of the things he takes care of is the maintenance of the city's many statues and One morning, the people of Rome wake up and they wipe the you know sleep from their eyes. And they get on the road to head to their place of work or wherever their day takes them. And all of a sudden, all over the city, there are statues of Caius Marius. Ones that had cropped up overnight without anyone having any idea this was coming. All the old statues commemorating the great seven-time consul's many victories, saving Rome from the Germans. They were all back out on the streets. Caesar had had them made again probably, they were probably destroyed, either made again or brought out of storage, and all of them put back overnight in their original spots. That's a little like saying it's okay for all of you populare people out there to proclaim, you know, your political affiliation openly again, because I just did, in a more open way than you're ever going to do. Now, all three of these important figures I just introduced, Cato, Cicero, and Caesar, will come to the fore in a famous event in Roman history. And one of the reasons that they are likely as powerful as they are in this story is because the most powerful man in the Roman world is gone when it happens. Pompey the Great, Pompeius Magnus, has had it with you know, the slow day-to-day grind of legislating in the Senate. He finally finds his great cause that will allow him to go be the superhuman you know, rock star again in military endeavors because the pirates, the same ones who had captured Julius Caesar, are out of control in the Mediterranean. And it's gotten so bad, you know, they don't even know if they could import the grain to feed Rome's, you know, poor huddled masses. And it becomes a crisis. And Rome's Senate debates the issue and decides that it's so bad, we have to give all this power to one man again. And this power is going to give whomever gets a hold of it total control in the whole Mediterranean, plus 50 miles in from the coastline, everywhere around the Mediterranean. Historians have pointed out that this would give control of the vast majority of the population of the known world to whomever got this command. Guess who got it? Pompey the Great. What's more, one of the few, maybe the only one to stand up and say, yes, I favor giving this enormous amount of power to one man was this young person few had even paid much attention to, except that he was obviously awesome, but at the same time, he's a young guy and his name was Julius Caesar. He spoke out for this extraordinary amount of power to go to Pompey whereas Cato and a bunch of the other traditionalists were absolutely you know petrified with the idea of taking already probably the most powerful figure in Rome and giving them total power the right to go make all this money train this army to peak efficiency and then come back here and celebrate the whole thing to them it looked like a whole Sulla redo but Pompey got his command and promptly in Pompeian fashion was amazing He lines up a fleet, essentially, in the west of the Mediterranean, and like a net, just moves it east, trapping all the pirates up against the coast and resettling some, killing others. He's amazing at it. And then he goes from there and wraps up the last of the three wars against Mithridates, the great of Pontus, who now runs away and pays The most ironic price you can imagine for spending his whole lifetime building up his immunity to poisons so that family members can't poison him, you know, in his sleep or something in his castle. Instead, now he tries to poison himself with the Romans, you know, fast on his heels and the poison won't work. So he has to have a slave either kill him or he kills himself. And Pompey gets away with all of Mithridates' loot, including his personal stash of antique mementos, which is supposed to include the great Alexander's cloak, which Pompey will start wearing around and bring back with him to Rome and wear in a parade. Meanwhile, he's got more conquests to make. So he goes down and starts ripping apart the Seleucid Empire, which is what will give Rome command of you know, the whole Holy Land. And while Pompey's gone, Caesar and Cicero and Cato take part in an event that I can't really describe to you because I don't know what happened. You see, there's something now that happens in Rome, and it's quite important, called the Catiline Conspiracies. The problem is, is that we only have information on this from people who had a very vested interest in one side of the story. The more you study this, the more it looks like Oliver Stone's You know, JFK movie, a John F. Kennedy conspiracy. You can't, you know, in the light of day now in modern times, figure out what's happening. And, you know, really reputable good historians differ profoundly on this point. Here's what you can tell for sure. We've been saying since the beginning of this series on Rome that Rome's going through tough economic times. Well, the last 20 years with slave revolts and revolts of the Allies and civil wars and, you know, the problems in Asia and everything else has contributed to now, in the 60s BCE, the very worst of the economic climates. Now, this will get fixed relatively soon when Pompey comes home because he's raking in money, and some of that money will go to himself, but some of it will go to, you know, Rome and Italy, and he'll bring it back and, you know, it'll be wonderful when it happens. But Pompey's off just starting that whole Situation: No one knows how it's going to turn out. And the situation in Rome is desperate. And it's desperate amongst a lot of different people. For example, the lower classes, it's desperate because it's been desperate for a long time. One of the interesting things about Rome during this period is many sources from the era explain that Rome was really getting the worst people from all of you know, the Roman world congregating in it the people who lost their jobs or were essentially homeless or couldn't make ends meet or were crazy or whatever were leaving all the other cities and going to Rome because you could get free food. The grain that was subsidized as part of a program usually to keep the people happy and get their votes created a climate where people who couldn't make it in the other Roman cities would flock to Rome, creating an underclass that was always angry, always poor, always living at a poverty level, and probably were the dregs in whatever society they had emigrated from. Rome had more than its share of, you know, the lower classes. And a lot of times, the Romans would try to start colonies elsewhere so that they could take these people that were not considered to be, you know, adding much to the Roman story and get them out of Rome. That class had been destitute a long time. But add to that all of Sulla's veteran legionaries who had been rewarded with the Land grants, a decade or so previously. A lot of them didn't make good farmers. They were in default. Or they'd been given really terrible land and sort of cheated, and they were angry and veterans, and they'd seen what working together could do for them. A lot of the really upper classes, though, were absolutely broke. They were borrowing tons of money because that's what you needed to run for office in Rome. And if you lost, the credit dried up instantly. It created an absolute desperation among Romans when they ran for office that if they didn't win, you know, it was all lost. Caesar himself is famous for running for the Pontificus Maximus, and he's running against a much more seasoned person who has a lot of money And he finds out that Caesar's kind of hurting for cash. And he goes up and says to him, listen, if you just drop out of the race, I'll pay all your debts and give you some money, which to Caesar looked like an act of weakness. So he went out and borrowed even more money from the moneylenders and then told his mother as he kissed her goodbye on Election Day, either I win this or I'm not coming back. Because if he'd lost, he would be considered a bad risk for his political creditors. The credit would dry up and he'd be done. Well, this was the exact situation that Lucius Sergius Catiline found himself in while running for the consulship. See, Catiline, like all Romans running for high office, has you know maxed out his credit, borrowed heavily to win the top job. One of the people he's running against, though, is Cicero, also trying to get the top job, and who has much less money. One of the reasons that Catiline is seen as so much of a devil by history, is because Cicero, you know, takes his silver tongue and uses it to just make Catiline look terrible. One of the debating tendencies of the day and the things that lawyers would use is absolute, you know, smear of character. And Cicero was an expert at this. and He made Catiline sound like some sort of hideous zombie who would tear the republic apart. And Catiline kind of gave him a little ammunition because Catiline was proposing something that was called new tablets in the Latin. Now, new tablets meant an erasing of debt. He was calling for the situation where everyone was in hock up to their ears to be essentially wiped out overnight, obviously There was a lot of popular support for this. And not just amongst the classes you would expect it from, all the poor folks. There was a ton of the nobility that had impoverished themselves up to their ears. And the idea of having their debt wiped out didn't sound too bad either. At the same time, this was something that would obviously be amazingly disruptive to Roman society. And since there weren't really banks and whatnot, as one historian's pointed out, all it would do is move the debt and who suffered from default to other people. But it was an immensely clever political ploy, and Catiline was not the first to use it. Other populares had thrown out similar ideas earlier. This freaked out the oligarchy, of course, who then threw their weight behind Cicero. And Catiline does not get the gig. It makes him more bitter than you can believe. So he decides he's going to try one more time. You get the feeling that he's got enough backing financially to try one more time. And this time, because he's the outgoing consul, Cicero, who's now made a powerful enemy of Catiline, has to be the one to carry out and sort of manage the elections. This is when the so-called conspiracy, if it happened, comes to a head. Now, the traditional story of the unfolding of the Catiline conspiracy is so full of drama that I'm tempted to just relate it you know, in its traditional form, the way Cicero explained it, or Sallust, or guys like that. But I can't do that in good conscience, because the reason it's such a great dramatic story may be because it was concocted to be one by guys like Cicero and Sallust. Cicero made his reputation in this situation. The Catiline conspiracies are important to this story of the fall of the Roman Republic because of the stage that it set for certain people to perform on. And this was Cicero's time to star. He would break up what Michael Grant, a uh, Roman expert, says was a second-rate conspiracy um, and then basically claim to have saved Rome. He'll be hailed as the father of his country, the second savior of Rome, for for stopping this attempted overthrow of the Roman state when... There's real doubt about what this was at all. This is the ancient world's version of the JFK assassination, and you can drown in the conspiracies and double conspiracies. And I mean, for example, it's very possible Catiline, bitter about the way things have gone, feeling cheated. There are letters that he supposedly sent to people that have come down in history, and they're great to read, but they may be forged, too. That's how deep this conspiracy goes. The forging may be an attempt to once again, show that Catiline and all of his evil followers were trying to do horrible things and needed to be stopped. But the letters are great stuff. I mean, it shows, if nothing else, how the Romans focused on, you know, their own personal dignity and how important it is to climb that rung of honors and get to the top job. And when Catiline was blocked in a way that he probably saw as maneuverings or illegal, um, you know, the story says that he went out there and tried to get power, by other means. And because he was promising to erase everyone's debt and distribute land to a lot of people, there were a ton of folks in his following that were very desperate. People who, if they could get Catiline into power, stood to have all their debts erased and, you know, they're almost bankrupt or up against it. You could be sold into slavery, by the way, depending on your class, if you uh, you know, were bankrupt. And these are people that if Catiline lost, they'd have to pay all those debts. The Numbers on their books would be real. So there was real desperation out there, and Catiline was obviously appealing to it. But if you read the sources, it sounds like Catiline is the second coming of, you know, the most evil, quasi Ivan the terrible type guy in history. They guys like Sallust lay every sort of blame on him you can. And do we really want to trust sources like this? Let me read to you Sallust's description of Catiline. And understand that, you know, of the few sources we have on this guy, this is the kind of bias you have working for you. Here's what Sallust writes. Quote, From the very first, Catiline, as an adolescent, had committed many unspeakable acts of illicit sex with a noble maiden, with a priestess of Vesta. That's a Vestal virgin, folks. That's an executable, you know, that's a death penalty offense, having sex with a Vestal virgin. Back to the piece. And other deeds of this type, contrary to divine and human law, finally he was captivated by love for Aurelia Arestela, in whom no good man ever praised anything but her appearance, but, because she hesitated to marry him through the fear of a stepson of adult years, it is believed, for certain, that he killed his son, thereby ensuring an empty house for the criminal marriage." In this affair, above all which seems to me to have been his reason for speeding up the deed, for his vile spirit, hostile to gods and men, could not be calmed by wakefulness or repose. To such an extent was his conscience preying upon his unquiet mind. Hence, his bloodless expression, and his ugly eyes, and his walk alternating between fast and slow. In short, there was a derangement in his demeanor and face. End quote. So pretty much... Sallust makes him out to be some kind of insane person who walks fast has a weird sort of gait who looks strange who kills his son so he can have i mean this is your unbiased source and cicero this is a man who will be proclaimed father of his country for saving rome from this conspiracy that he first brought up then provided the documentation for and made the case for and then benefited from personally this is the biggest political success arguably in Cicero's career, and to expect him to be unbiased about how large the demon was that he slayed um, is unrealistic. In fact, there's a way you could look at this, the Dan Carlin way I would suggest, that I think makes sense. And all you're doing when you come up with these theories is siding with some historians, because historians ever since this period the end of Republican Rome, have been arguing about who Catiline was and what was this conspiracy and did he really plan to sweep into Rome and have his followers kill a bunch of senators and the two consuls and light parts of Rome on fire and bring in an army from Maturia? There was an army, a couple thousand guys, small, but I mean it was there. Was all that, you know, true? Because what happens is Cicero supposedly gets word in the middle of the night from Crassus and Crassus, the richest man in the world or whatever, has received a warning note from somebody who says, you know, you got to get out of town. Something's about to go down, and uh, you know, you're going to be one of the first targets. Get out now. And so Crassus, with a bunch of other people who supposedly receive similar warnings, you know, knocks on Cicero's door at midnight, wakes him up, shows him the notes. He runs down to the forum. Everybody convenes, and he says, "This terrible thing's about to happen." They end up, and this is one of the reasons why the story becomes important to later history. They end up scotching the whole deal in advance. A note trying to get a Gallic tribe on the side of this, you know, rebellion that's coming is intercepted, and a bunch of the people supposedly involved in the plot, although not Catiline, including some, uh, you know, rather upper-class Romans, uh, are captured, and then there's this debate, this famous debate over what's going to be done with them, and this is another reason you can't trust Cicero, because... What Cicero is advocating should be done with them is basically something that a lot of Romans after this time will say is unconstitutional and that violates all these uh, rights that Romans have. And so Cicero's got a vested interest after this date of making it seem like this was a, you know, you don't understand what a unique, terrible event this Catiline thing was, and this is the case he's making to... You know, this group of senators all gathering around. What should we do with these five or six captured important people in the plot? And Cicero's arguing that, look, the plot's still going on. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, we could have a crisis situation in a minute. And, of course, Rome doesn't really have a prison system, per se. So Cicero's arguing that these guys have to be killed. And he's working under a decree that gives him emergency power. But, you know, he's not a nobleman. He's not one of the great Romans. He's from that same small town that Caius Marius was from. He has to sort of appeal to the more powerful senators. He says, I think he should die. What do you guys think? And basically they start voting for death. And then one guy stands up, one of the young senators, and says, I don't think we should kill him says, I think they need to be um, locked up or put in someone's houses under their you know, honor or whatever until this whole thing can be sorted out and we can decide this when you know, calmer heads prevail. After all, you know, you're not allowed to go deprive a Roman of his life without you know, putting it to the people. That man this guy is Gaius Julius Caesar. And then all of a sudden, a lot of these senators that had just said, yes, we have to kill these men, um, changed their minds. All of a sudden, the whole Senate's kind of thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't do it. I don't know. That's a pretty persuasive argument. And Cicero calls on Cato. Cato, the one who always appeals to the old Roman way and the stoic Roman values and gets up there and shames everybody by how unflinchingly stoic and inflexible he is when it comes to the moral issues. And he gets up there and basically says, you know, two things. One, we should kill all these people. And two, he, he implies that Julius Caesar might have been in on the plot. And there's a lot of people saying Crassus might have been in on the plot. Again, once you dive into the Catalan conspiracies, you might as well be just, I mean, there, it's one of the great ones. I mean, JFK is one of the great ones, too. The rabbit hole goes so deep on that you could just go into it for hours. What it means for Rome, though, is Cicero takes these you know, captives that they have and very quickly has them killed has them executed, just marches them right off to the jail, they're strangled there, and it's over. Before, it it almost feels like it was done so that it would be over and no one would be able to say a word, and it's a fait accompli. I've read some of these people who say that that was to get people out of the way that could contradict Cicero's side of the story. Catiline will end up fleeing. He'll put himself at the head of this small army. They'll fight a battle. He'll be killed. So will the army. And so ends the Catiline conspiracy, really. But if you ask me, if I had to choose between the various conspiracy theories here, what I think Catiline was was just another version of the same pattern we've seen in the Roman Republic, going back to at least Tiberius Gracchus, these reformers uh, who rise up and get slammed down by the governing oligarchy, and sometimes these reformers are genuinely you know, humanitarians, basically. And sometimes they're young noblemen who can champion the cause of the masses and, you know, benefit politically at the same time. Some of them cynically, but I think some of them looked at it as the best of both worlds. How will I get to be a great man? Which, of course, is all of our goals, right, Romans? Well, I will champion the cause of the people, I will be doing good, and I will become great at the same time. Here's the letter, maybe forged, but here's the letter that comes down to us that's supposed to be an explanation by Catiline, probably on his way to death, facing the might of the Roman state now that his you know, supposed plot has been exposed. Here's his justification for doing what he's doing. It's interesting. And it tells you a lot about the Romans of the period and what they valued, whether the letter is forged or not. Quote, I do not intend to make any formal defense of my new policy. I will, however, explain my point of view. What I'm going to say implies no consciousness of guilt, and on my word of honor, you can accept it as the truth. I was provoked by wrongs and insults and robbed of the fruit of my painstaking industry. And I found myself unable to maintain a position of dignity. So I openly undertook the championship of the oppressed, as I had often done before. "'I saw unworthy men promoted to honorable positions "'and felt myself treated as an outcast "'on account of unjust suspicions. "'That's why I have adopted a course of action, "'amply justified in my present circumstances, "'which offers a hope of saving what is left of my honor. "'I intend to write at greater length, "'but news has come that they're preparing "'to use force against me. "'So for the present, I commend Aristilla, his wife, "'to you and entrust her to your protection. "'Shield her from wrong. "'I beg you in the name of your own children.'" Farewell, end quote. How wonderfully dramatic is that? Impossible to know, but the story itself is fascinating. And in my mind, the oligarchy of Rome was past the point where they could just kill these populare troublemakers like Tiberius Gracchus and Caius Gracchus. The old mob violence way in the old days wouldn't work anymore. You had to have some sort of excuse or justification to, you know, sell it to the people. Wasn't the oligarchy trying to protect our own interests? These guys were going to bring violence and death and destruction to all of Rome again. Remember Marius and those guys? That's the way they made it sound. This is how you kill a Tiberius Gracchus 60 years after Tiberius Gracchus when the old excuses don't work anymore. That's kind of how it looks to me. And there's little bits of evidence of the fact that these guys were heroes to the lower classes because for years after the death of Catiline and the crushing of the conspiracy by the now hailed as father of the nation, Cicero, the poor people were still draping flowers all over the grave of Catiline. Not the kind of thing you do for a deranged sexual pervert that tried to bring death and destruction to Rome, right? No histories from that period have come down to us championing the point of view of those people putting flowers on Catiline's grave. Instead, it will be up to more modern historians to attempt to give the perspective from the side that was defeated in the Catiline affair. Modern historian Will Durant writes such an epitaph when he says, quote... Being essentially a man of thought rather than of action, Cicero was surprised and impressed by the skill and courage he had shown in suppressing a dangerous revolt. The direction of so great an enterprise, he told the Senate, seemed scarcely possible to merely human wisdom. He compared himself with Romulus, that's the mythical founder of Rome, folks, but considered it a greater deed to have preserved Rome than to have founded it. Senators and magnates smiled at his language, but they knew that he had saved them. Cato and Catulus hailed him as father of his country. When, at the end of 63 BC, he laid down his office, all the property classes in the community, he tells us, gave him thanks, named him immortal, and escorted him in honor to his home. The proletariat did not join in these demonstrations. It could not forgive him for violating the laws of Rome by putting citizens to death without appeal. It felt that he had made no effort to remove the causes of Catiline's revolt or to mitigate the poverty of the masses. It refused to let him address the assembly on that last day and listened in anger when he swore that he had preserved the city. The revolution was not over. With Caesar's consulate, it would begin again. End quote. Durant comes from the historical camp that sees all of these affairs since Tiberius Gracchus in 140 as manifestations of the same revolution, a movement that in his mind ebbs and flows like a forest fire. And sometimes you'll get a great leader like a Tiberius or a Caius Gracchus, and then it flames up again, and then when it's crushed by the oligarchy, it lays low for a while only to flame up again, you know, with the next inspirational popular leader. There are many people who, after Catalan's rebellion was crushed, felt that Caesar and Crassus got off lightly. They would be tarred and feathered for, you know, the rest of their careers for involvement in the Catalan affair— that some felt had never been brought out. In fact, there's a story of a person who appeared after Catiline's death who said that he had proof of the involvement of one or both of those men, and he was shouted down and hustled away and put into jail, and by morning he was dead. As I said, you could drown in all the wonderful eddies connected to the Catiline conspiracy. After the threat of the conspiracy is removed, life gets back to some level of normalcy. Caesar's elected to the top religious position in Rome, the Pontificus Maximus, in 62 BCE. And that's the same year that he has to divorce his wife. And he has to divorce his wife for reasons connected to probably the most historically important case of cross-dressing in human history. That. And the entire rest of the story, no matter how long it takes, in the next edition of Death Throes of the Republic. Coming up in the next episode of Death Throes of the Republic, we're going to do something we've never done before as part of this program. We're going to try to tie up a multi-part series in one very long episode. We'd like to get past this to more different historical tales and yet we don't want to cheat this story at all because we're obviously in love with it. So, we're assuming if you've stuck around 5 episodes already, you'd be fine with an extra long one to tie it all together, and that's what we plan in episode 6. We'll take this story to the Ides of March. We'll talk about the first triumvirate, we'll talk about, you know, the deaths of some of the great men in this story and then we'll give you a little postscript at the end. In other words, we'll give you the rest of the story, no matter how long it takes. In death rows of the republic part six. Do you shop online at amazon.com? If you do, consider doing so through the Amazon search window on dancarlin.com. Your shopping experience will be the same as always, but Amazon will give Dan and Ben a little kickback for sending you there. Remember that you can purchase the archives of all of our old shows by going to the website and clicking on our merchandise link. We also want to thank you all for posting reviews on podcast sites and comments and blogs about the show. It's really helping.